0: Inception: A team of operatives are tasked with getting the head of a corporation to dissolve his own company. How are they to do this? Well, they use dream sharing technology to dive deep into the corporate head's mind in order to plant the idea of the dissolution deep in his subconscious. The goal being that when he awakens, he'll he'll have no memory of the events of the dream, but will take the idea and act on it, dissolving his own company. A major theme in this very, very excellent movie is the resiliency and power of an idea. I mean, if a mere idea can get you to dissolve something that's worth billions and billions of dollars, then it must be very powerful. This theme is common throughout the Western canon, reaching into everything from the tragedy of Prince Hamlet to Edgar Allan Poe's A Telltale Heart. Um, Both of those examples are about contemplating and then committing murder, but the point still stands that our thoughts necessarily lead to our actions. Everything we do is first rooted in our minds. The problem is how can we as Christians act out of our thoughts if our thoughts are not righteous? How can we as Christians live the life God desires for us and calls us to? Not perfectly by any means, but more intentionally. What do we need to be filling our minds with in order to be able to live more like Christ? Well, today's text will address that problem in part. We're going to be talking about Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Several months ago, when John asked me to preach um, on this Sunday, he he said, you can either preach Genesis 33 or a related New Testament passage. And I said, what about an unrelated New Testament passage? Because <laughs> I knew that, uh, that this, uh, this point in my semester, I would be writing a research paper on Romans 12. And so um, I am now going to read you a very long research paper. I'm just kidding. Uh, however, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, I do have some reading material for you. Um, send me an email. Uh, let's start by reading verse 1 together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The author Paul the Apostle starts off with, I I appeal to you therefore. And the first question we have to ask is is the old adage, what is the therefore therefore, you know, right? Why is the therefore there? what What is he saying therefore there? Why is he rooting his appeal Uh, on something. So the answer is that he's laid a theological foundation for the last 11 chapters. This verse actually marks Paul's last major movement in Romans, where it's all about the Christian life. And in the previous 11 chapters, he's been talking about the universal reign of sin and the mercies and love of God in light of it. He's been talking about the gospel. All of us were sinners, yet Christ died for us while we were sinners. And nothing can separate us from the love of God now. Therefore, present your bodies as sacrifice. Rooted on that foundation, present your bodies as sacrifice. He's grounded this exhortation in the truth and beauty of the gospel. He asks Christians to present their bodies as a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? He gives three attributes. One that is alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Now, holy and pleasing to God is... Normal sacrificial language, we see that all over the Old Testament, uh, and especially in Leviticus. Very often, a holy sacrifice was presented, and its fragrance or aroma when it was burnt was pleasing to God. So we also are to be like these Old Testament sacrifices, set apart from the world, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the text, and pleasing to God, abiding in his will. So really the only attribute that stands out here is, as strange when describing a sacrifice is living. Holy and pleasing to God are Old Testament language. Living is unusual. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I don't know if you know this, but most of the sacrifices in the Old Testament didn't survive the process. They, they did not continue to live after they were sacrificed. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, in Romans 6, Paul explains that you, Christian, have been brought out of the realm of death and given new life. You have died to sin and are now alive in Christ. You've been drugged out of the realm of death and out of sin and out of slavery to your sin. The death portion of your sacrifice that is owed to God was taken on by Christ. We joined Christ in his death and his resurrection. How much more? That means you no longer owe God your death. Christ gave him that on your behalf. So you get to do the living part. Praise God. What does that mean for us then? What does it mean to present your body as a sacrifice that is living, holy, and pleasing to God? New Testament scholar Richard Longenecker describes these sacrifices as those who, one, are committed entirely to God's purposes, two, Who accept at all times God's continued cleansing of their lives, and three, who endeavor always to act in ways that are consistent with God's will. I'll I'll reread that. It's one, who are committed entirely to God's purposes, those who, you might say, live for Him. Two, who accept at all times God's continued cleansing of of their lives, or those who are sanctified to be made holy. And then three, who endeavor always to act in ways that are consistent with God's will, those who seek to please God. Ultimately, it means not just our bodies, but our whole lives. Our whole lives are owed to God, our whole lives are oriented around Him. And the last part of this verse makes an addition to this exhortation. Paul describes this act of presenting oneself as a sacrifice, as your spiritual worship. Now, what on earth does this mean? If you're scratching your head at that phrase, uh, you're not alone. I think that there are f- more than five prominent English translations of just this one phrase because we're not precisely certain at what Paul was trying to get at here. Some of these translations say spiritual worship, some say rational worship, some say reasonable service. The word spiritual in the text here is actually the same word we get the word logic from in English. However, in some Hellenistic Jewish context around the first century, it was used to mean spiritual. So it could be that Paul is using the Jewish spiritual meaning, or it could be that he's using the Greco-Roman logical reasonable meaning here. I'll say I think that the reasonable meaning makes a little bit more sense in the context because he roots this exhortation of the, uh, in, in the mercies of God. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's appealing based on the mercies of God. And if this phrase means reasonable, then of course. It is only reasonable to respond to the mercies of God, the beauty and goodness of his character with complete and utter sacrifice. It is only logical that once you recognize how God has been merciful to you, that you would give your whole life over to him. It is reasonable worship to do so. And I think this can be instructional for us. If we're having a hard time sacrificing our whole life to Christ, and all of us are, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tall order. We got to remember that Paul is rooting this command in the mercies of God. Do you not know that God's kindness has intended to lead you to repentance? If you feel burnt out, ripped apart, unfaithful, like you're wandering from God, remember his mercies. Remember that sin reigned over your body as a cruel master and he set you free from that enslavement. Now you are a slave to righteousness, a good and right master. Remember that while you were yet a sinner, a good man, Christ Jesus, died for you. These are good and wonderful truths that aren't intended to drive us to shame, but rather love. We are to love and be endeared to God through these things, not shamed by our failures, but captured by the love and goodness of a merciful God. This ties into what John was saying last week about silence and solitude. We need to intentionally spend time alone dwelling on God's mercies, meditating on God's mercies. It will have a profound impact on how we practice our faith and love God. Let's go on to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. And perfect. Paul begins his next exhortation with Do not be conformed, but be transformed. The word conformed kind of carries this connotation of there being a pre existing framework, a pre existing mold or schematic, if you will, that the world has that we adopt or become more like. The world has a pattern, a framework of behavior that it operates in, things that it loves, language it uses the way that it treats others. Paul is exhorting us to not adopt it. And notice that he uses the passive verb. He doesn't say, he doesn't say don't conform to this world. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The formative power of the world is strong. If you are not actively resisting it, it will form you. You don't have to choose to adopt it. It will be forced Into you and upon you if you don't resist it. We certainly experience this. I think media consumption, for example, is a hugely formative way that we spend our time now. It is certainly true that far more of our thoughts, opinions, and beliefs about the world are a result of what we watch than we would ever like to believe. The things that you spend your time reading, watching, indulging in do shape and form you. This is one of the reasons we gather regularly to study God's word and worship his name, because we want to be shaped by this practice. We want to be formed by this practice. We wanna be formed by our study and worship. But media consumption is a, is a danger no matter how mature or strong of a Christian you are. Jared made a point during the spiritual warfare class that bears repeating. If you spend five minutes a day uh, in devotion to God, reading your Bible or praying, and then three to four hours that same day Uh, watching God dishonoring television or social media or Netflix, it's not going to be surprising if you're struggling in your faith. Of course, you're not going to be having a good time. And I'm not saying don't watch TV. I'm not saying don't spend your time on social media. I'm saying that our hearts and minds ought to be filled with godly things rather than worldly things. And the way that we spend our time matters in that equation. It matters a lot. It's one of the ways, it's part of what might make us holy sacrifices. Individuals who are set apart from our age, our world, our culture. By the way, we love one another and love God. Spending intentional time meditating on the mercies of God rather than consuming that which is not good or pleasing or perfect is a step in the right direction. So do not be conformed, but rather, Paul tells us, to be transformed. Become something wholly new. How? By the renewal of your minds, renewing your mind, making your mind new again. What does Paul mean by this exhortation? What does it mean to renew your mind? Well, Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are sanctified by the beholding of God's glory. We are sanctified from one degree to another when we behold God. So this isn't merely an exhortation toward intellectual study or studying theology or uh, reading your Bible every day. Those are not bad things, but it's not merely an, uh, uh, an exhortation towards that. Those things are good and worthwhile, but you can read your Bible every day. You can study theology and not be renewing your mind in the sense that Paul means here. Rather, Paul is exhorting us to once again dwell on the love and mercies of God. Beholding his glory and his goodness will form and shape us into the image of Christ. We become wholly new people when we do this. He then concludes this verse by saying that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, as John said a few weeks back, God does not have a secret will for your life that he intends for you to discern before it happens. That's not a biblical idea. Rather, what Paul means here is by testing, you might be able to discern God's will of command. What is good? What is right? What is acceptable and perfect? as he says, it's that which he reveals to us about himself and about how life ought to be lived. Hebrews 5.14 says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the important point. That training is the testing. This testing is the practice of distinguishing God's will from sin. Discerning what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. That's what it means to discern God's will by testing. We want to be regularly bringing the problems and moral struggles of our life before the revealed will of God in his word and test our attitudes and decisions against it. Are we conforming to the world or are we being transformed by the renewal of our minds? So much of the Christian life is a battle of the mind. Are we resisting sinful thoughts? Are we meditating on the mercies of God? Are we testing our decisions and attitudes against the revealed will of God in Scripture? This is the way that we become sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Certainly not perfectly, but we aspire to it here. Let's read verse 3 together. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He opens by saying, by the grace given to me. And we'll we'll talk about that whenever we get to verse six, because he uses that phrase again. He says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think. The word used here in the Greek has the prefix hyper on it. So it's like, don't hyper think of yourself. Don't think of yourself over and above what is necessary, rather with sober judgment, think about yourself or sensibly, think sensibly about yourself. Some translators translate the word as sensibly. And I think that works a little bit better in our modern context, just because the word sober carries a connotation of alcohol or drug use that isn't actually present in Paul's language here. We're to think sensibly about ourselves, to be of sound mind. This is one of the few texts in the whole Bible that talks about how Christians ought to regard themselves, how Christians ought to think about self-esteem. Well, by this text, we understand we ought not to think too highly of ourselves, first of all, but we ought to think with discerning, sensible judgment about ourselves. We ought to be a sound mind when we're thinking about ourselves. And then this last clause comes in and says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And suddenly you're like, okay, I don't understand anymore. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) We ought to think of ourselves according to the faith given to us. Well, there are two major views on what Paul means here in this passage. Um, I'm more inclined to believe the minority view, but I'm going to present both of them to you because I'm not convinced of either. Um, The majority opinion is that Paul... Means here that Christians ought to think of themselves in accordance with the amount of faith or trust that they have put in God. It's literally the, the portion of your faith. How much trust have you put in God? Think of yourself corresponding to that. Now, our first question is: won't that make them prideful? Isn't a person, won't, won't, it, won't it make people who are strong in their faith proud to not be those who have little faith? Well, the answer is no. It should not, because the text makes it clear that God is the one who apportioned the faith. It's not, it's not someone's to claim for themselves. They're not like I, I trust God more than this, this other person, and you know I'm so great because I do that. Rather, God apportioned the faith. He measured it out to them. So sounds good. Then it uh, it doesn't cause us to be prideful. My issue with this view is that I I basically just don't understand. what Paul means then about how a measure of faith will help us in regard to thinking of ourselves. If you're not supposed to think of yourself more highly, if you have stronger faith, then what is the use of the measure of faith in your self-evaluation? How does your faith actually play a role in your self-regard? So in comes the minority view. A few scholars like Douglas Moo believe this, but it's against other prominent scholars like Tom Schreiner, So whatever side of the fence you land on, you're in in good company. This view is that Paul isn't saying a measure of faith here, but a standard of faith. A standard of faith that's given to you. So it's it's not a measure of faith apportioned, but a standard of faith given. What is the Christian's standard of faith? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ given to us. So each Christian ought to think of themselves with sensible judgment according to the standard of faith. We compare ourselves to Christ. We compare ourselves to Christ. This is a blessing to us because proper self-regard can then be humbly achieved when we think this way. In the ways that we look like Christ, we can think of ourselves as good. We can acknowledge that there is goodness. Obviously never perfect, but in the ways that we fail to conform to the character of Christ, we then have a standard to move towards. Thus, we can remain humble as the standard of Christ is not attainable for us, but we can still acknowledge what is good about us. If you're a patient and gentle person, you can recognize that you look more like Christ in that area of your life, and that's not a bad thing to recognize. You won't become puffed up with pride because you're not actually attaining the ideal. If you're a passionate or loving person, you can, see that as, uh, you can see that as good about you without becoming prideful because you have not attained to the ideal. I think this is more persuasive as the meaning as it makes more sense out of Paul's argument. But again, I'm not convinced, so feel free to disagree with me. So do not compare yourself to your neighbor to be puffed up or beaten down. Compare yourself to Christ to acknowledge what is good and what is evil within you. The beauty of this is that it not only deals with pride, but with self-regard that is sinfully low. Because the character of Christ is immensely loving. His heart is gentle and lowly towards us. So if you are unkind to yourself because of where you fall short of Christ's ideal, you're falling even shorter of Christ's ideal. His heart toward you is loving. So if your heart toward yourself is not appropriately loving as well, you are not conforming to his character. Let's go on to verses four and five. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul exhorts us to humility, to right thinking of ourselves, to proper self-regard, and then points us toward the corporate body. He then points us to his, his very common analogy of the church as the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we are the body. Now, what's important to note about about a body is that it is diverse. We have legs and arms and a chest and a stomach and eyes and a mouth and a nose. Yet, they all work together to support the life of the individual themselves. So, Paul wants to to with this analogy emphasize both the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ. He says, "We do not all have the same function. We do not all have the same function." Not everyone is going to teach. Not everyone is going to be a missionary. Not everyone is going to make considerable amounts of money in order to financially support the church and its mission. We do not all have the same function. Now, I think we can hear this and sort of hear Paul saying that there may be roles that everybody sort of wants to do, but not everyone can do them. Like everybody wants to be the hands, but no one really wants to be a nose or something like that. I don't know. Yet we still need noses, so some people are gonna to have to do the bad jobs. Some people are gonna to have to do the jobs that no one really wants to do. I'm just making an example. It could be really great to be a nose, I don't know. But that's not the point Paul is making. Say say everyone in this room wants to be hands. We wanna be the hands of Christ. What fresh Lovecraftian horror is a body that's made entirely of hands? <laughs> Or, or eyes or lips that are all trying to speak and talk at the same time. The image is a horrible one. No, it's precisely because the body is diverse in its roles and it function, that it functions so well. The diversity of the body's members are what make it effective and capable and healthy. So it is not that some people have to take the undesirable jobs of the body. It's not that the body, uh, that the church is a body in spite of its diversity, rather it's a body only by virtue of its diversity otherwise it would be an utter monstrosity notice how paul's teaching on humility connects here though if we think rightly of ourselves if we don't hyperthink of ourselves we are willing and effective when we work with others we all have experiences with proud coworkers who are difficult to work with right The problem is never their fault or their responsibility to solve. They speak about themselves and their accomplishments at every opportunity. It can make for a frustrating workplace. May it not be so among us, church. May it not be so here. None of us reach the ideal of Christ. So what do we have to boast in? Christ and Christ alone. John and Jared may be better preachers than any of us, but they fall flat when compared to the way that Jesus is able to divide truth and speak to the heart. The same is true of Preston and I leading the music ministry, of our deacons, Justin, Callie, and Keenan and their ministries, of each of you in the numerous ways you all serve our church. And thank you, church, you do serve us. But none of us can stand up next to the way that Christ loves, serves, gives, teaches, worships, and leads. So we ought to think of ourselves sensibly against the standard of faith, according to the standard of faith. Let's read verses six through eight. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So then, how ought we to serve Well, we ought to play our roles as though we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us has been given a gift according to the grace given to us, even Paul. If you remember back to verse three, Paul speaks by the grace given to him in a commanding way. We know that Paul's spiritual gift, at least one of them was his apostleship. The ability to speak in a commanding way with inspiration from the Holy Spirit, his teaching is authoritative. So he is using his gift when he's writing his letter. He's literally Practicing what he's preaching while he's preaching it. What are our gifts then? Paul has given us a list here, not an exhaustive list, but a list. He does this a couple times in his letters in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. So you can try and read those lists and discern if you have these gifts. But as you think about it, let me give you a few guiding principles. The first thing to note is that spiritual gifts are always spoken about in the context of the church. They are intended to be tools for the Holy Spirit to use to build up the kingdom of God. They are not for any individual's glorification. A gifted evangelist who isn't rooted in a church and is not using his gifts to serve the body of Christ is ineffectively using his gift. Gifts are intended to be used in the context of the church for its good and encouragement. The second principle for discerning your own gifts is what do you love to do? What do you love to do for the service of the church? What are you passionate about? Where are your desires when it comes to Christian ministry? Do you like evangelizing? Are you passionate about missions? Are you cheerful at the opportunity to give? What do you want to do? The Lord has set desires in your heart for how you might serve the church. Don't dismiss them. Let them be your first indicators. And then third principle, ask your church. What does your church say you're gifted at? And church, if you see someone doing something well, tell them that. Please tell them that. Please encourage them that way. It would be a gift. Say, you've been very merciful to me. Maybe mercy is one of your gifts. Or you lead this well. Maybe you should look for more leadership opportunities. Affirm them in what you see them do well. If you're wondering if you have a gift, ask your church what they think about it. You may be really passionate about teaching, but be a wholly ineffective communicator. It's tough news to hear, but that might be the case. You may be really passionate about mission, but lack the zeal or integrity to carry it out. The church can and should be speaking into that for you. By the way, if you feel a gifting for evangelism, or you would like to do it more, even if you're not gifted in it, I'd like to inform you again that our children's ministry (laughs) is in need of volunteers. I believe the highest concentration, I believe the highest concentration of people who don't believe in Jesus Christ is about 100 feet down that hallway in our building. So, and they desperately need to hear the gospel from people who are not just their parents. So if you're eligible, consider volunteering there. Also, by way of advice, Uh, Ignore spiritual gift surveys uh, (laughs) that you find online, or from Wifeway, or whoever else. They don't know you at all. Your church community does, though. Um, (laughs) Stephen Kagan and I were actually having (laughs) a conversation about personality quizzes uh, generally like a couple months ago, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but I thought it was really funny and true. that. It's one of those things where like you tell a survey everything about yourself and then they say it back to you and you're like, that is, that's me. You're like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's like, you know, I think I'm this way. And then they say, we think that you're that way too. And you're like, wow, that's so insightful. <laughs> so it's not, it's just not as, uh, as uh, you know, voracious of a way to evaluate yourself as asking your community to do so. Anyway, let's look at Paul's list of gifts here. Not exhaustive, remember. He first lists prophecy. Now, Paul does this in all his lists. He lists prophecy and apostleship as two of the first spiritual gifts. And the church has wrestled for a long time over what those mean for us today. Were they offices that have now passed on after the early church? Are there still apostles and prophets today? Uh, maybe we would say that some people have the gift of prophecy or apostleship, but aren't, aren't specifically prophets and apostles. To be honest, I don't have a strong stance on this other than to say that there was some category of capital P prophets and capital A apostles who are no longer around. Individuals whose teaching was inspired by the Holy Spirit and inerrant. We do not have a good reason to think that those kinds of apostles and prophets are still around today. Apart from that, I'll speak to what we know about the New Testament gift of prophecy, but not much else. Um, If you think that you might have the gift of prophecy, come talk to me after the service, I'm very curious. First, prophecy is not synonymous with preaching. Some scholars have taken this view that it is the same thing as as preaching. It's not synonymous. Uh, It is very heavily related, though. Um, I think that the way that Paul talks about prophecy and how it ought to be practiced in 1 Corinthians 14, though, indicates that it was different than preaching. Maybe uh, not unrelated, but different. Prophecy in the New Testament was usually an individual discerning truth directly from God, sometimes about the future, but more often about a specific circumstance or or situation, and then proclaiming that truth to the people of God. Prophecy was not cryptic, but comprehensible. It was not erratic, it was controllable. Paul says it is good for Christians to seek out and practice the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. Prophecy was for the edification and encouragement of the church and it was intended to be scrutinized and questioned. It was intended to be tested against the scriptures, against the teachings of the apostles, and actually against uh, what other prophets said. So Paul views this gift very highly. It's always first or second on his lists of spiritual gifts. But it is not the same thing as speaking for God. Now the phrase, in proportion to our faith, can change meanings based on which view you take of the phrase in verse three about the measure of faith. I think both meanings are good though. Uh, If it's the amount of faith that you have, then yes, it would be good if prophets only prophesied to the extent that they were trusting God, that they were certain that what they were saying was God's truth. If it's the standard of faith, that is Jesus Christ and his teachings, then also good. Prophets should not be teaching things that were not in line with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. So both meanings work here. Paul then lists three gifts and the arenas of ministry that we should be used in. If you're gifted in serving, then use your gift in service. If you're gifted in teaching, then use your gift in teaching. If you're gifted in exhortation, then use your gift to exhort people. He's basically saying, be committed to your gift. If you know you're good at something, you love to do it, and your church affirms your gift, please use it to build us up. We need you. I'd like to very quickly draw, your, draw our attention to the gift of uh, exhortation because we forget it so often. Paul regularly lists this as a spiritual gift, and it is one that is deeply necessary. So all of you words of affirmation people, you exhorters, uh, your ministry is deeply necessary to our church. Please encourage those you see serving, especially those who serve behind the scenes. They often have thankless jobs. Thank them. Tell them that you see them and that God is glorified in their service. The last three gifts Paul lists, he lists the manner in which we are to do them rather than the arena in which we do them. Give with generosity. Lead with zeal. Forgive or do acts of mercy cheerfully. The Lord delights in and those who serve him with whole hearts. So in all you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, if you don't feel particularly gifted in an area, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're off the hook from ever engaging with it. The New Testament still calls us all to give, all to show mercy, all to share the gospel, to serve the church. But we should let those who are gifted lead the way in those ministries. In all things, we must be committed to the ways that God has gifted us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Now remember, all of this, all of Paul's exhortations here are rooted in the first 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters of, of Romans and the mercies of God. We see here a lot of imperatives and practical information this morning about our spiritual gifts, about humility, about sacrificing ourselves. But remember that when you accept Christ, you don't receive a to-do list. You receive his grace and mercy. Rest in that. He delights in you, believer. Right now, you are set free from slavery to sin and have become slaves to God. But he has accomplished all that is necessary. And he will accomplish all that is necessary, whether we're operating at 100% 100 or 10%. He has chosen to include us in his plan as a, Wonderful privilege to us, but it's not resting on our shoulders. So rest in the mercy of God. It is true that Christ, our perfect ideal, the only one who is good and acceptable and pleasing to God, died on a cross for us while we were yet sinners, and that through this sacrifice, he has brought all people that will believe in him from death into life. Not on our own merits, not by our own power. Not because we tried real hard or read our Bibles every day or served the poor or loved our neighbor, but because of his mercy and his mercy alone. If you don't know the mercy of God, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian, please come talk to us. Please come talk to me or the elders or the person that you are with. If you want to know more about what Paul means when he appeals to these Christians based on the mercy of God, please come talk to us we would love to talk with you about the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another day in your creation. God, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and before one another. I pray that we would think often of your mercies, of your goodness toward us, and that we would respond appropriately, reasonably, by sacrificing our whole selves for you, giving you our attention and filling our minds with things of you. God, I pray that this would inspire us to humility, to the building up of the church through our unique giftings. God, do not let us be conformed to this world, but transformed by beholding your glory and dwelling on your goodness. Thank you, God, for this church and for your word. In your name I pray, amen.